So it was a grand and glorious thing for a moment, an all too brief moment it seems. David won the trust of the northern tribes, danced the ark into Jerusalem and unified the kingdom. Yes, there was scandal and the occasional trickery, but this was ancient Israel's high holy moment. Solomon, David's son and successor, built the temple, a house for the ark. Now, God never really asked for the temple. God never really needed a brick and mortar place to call home. But instead, God indulged David's dream and gave permission for David's son Solomon to build the temple. You see, God was always more concerned with building a people. A lineage of leaders who keep God's word, a people who would worship God more than anything of their own making or doing. And as David's kingdom wanes and Solomon's then begins, the cracks we thought were there become more obvious. We remember Solomon as wise, but scripture also tells us that he was ruthless, conscripting forced labor out of all Israel to build his masterpiece. As the elaborate temple walls are being erected, God reminds Solomon where God's concern still lies. Concerning this house that you are building, if you will walk in my statutes, obey my ordinances, and keep all my commandments by walking in them, then I will establish my promise with you, which I made to your father David. I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. Again, God makes it clear God is not all that worried about the color of the carpet or the height of the staircase. God desires faithfulness. God longs for promises kept. As you may recall, things do not go well during Solomon's reign, at least by God's standards. Yes, the temple is built and Solomon amasses tremendous wealth and power. But Solomon also fails to keep faith as God has asked. For when Solomon was old, scripture tells us his wives turned away his heart after other gods and his heart was not true to the Lord his God as was the heart of his father David. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not not completely follow the Lord as his father David has done. And the text goes on to tell us that there are consequences. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your mind and you have not kept my covenant... And my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of your father, David, I will not do it in your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Solomon's son is Rehoboam. A prophet declares that God will, in fact, give a good portion of the kingdom to Jeroboam. Rehoboam, Jeroboam, will want to keep them straight today. Jeroboam is the son of one of Solomon's advisors. Solomon gets wind of this and seeks to have him killed, so Jeroboam flees to Egypt. Then Solomon dies and Rehoboam is on the throne. Now I invite you to listen as I read from 1 Kings chapter 12. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard it, for he was still in Egypt where he had fled King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. And they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy, now therefore lighten 
the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke that he placed on us, and we will serve you. He said to them, go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the older men who had attended his father Solomon while he was still alive, saying, how do you advise me to answer this people? They answered him, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he disregarded the advice that the older men gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and now attended him. He said to them, what do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, lighten the yoke that your father put on us? The young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus you should say to this people who spoke to you. Your father made our yoke heavy, but you must lighten it for us. Thus you should say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's loins. Now whereas my father laid on you a heavy loke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king had said. The king answered the people harshly. He disregarded the advice that the older men had given him and spoke to them according to the advice of the young men. My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you as scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people. Because it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and resided there. He went out from there and built Penuel. Then Jeroboam said to himself, now the kingdom may well revert to the house of David. If this people continues to go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, this heart The heart of this people will turn again to their master, King Rehoboam of Judah. You see, Jeroboam became king of the people who didn't want to follow Rehoboam. But Jeroboam said and feared, they will kill me and return to King Rehoboam of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. He said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. He set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. And this thing became a sin for the people went to worship before the one at Bethel and before the other as far as Dan. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It can be difficult to hear any good news in that text, right? Rehoboam, the heir to David's throne, seems determined to rule with scorn and cruelty alongside his, let's face it, obnoxious, toxic friends. Jeroboam isn't much better. They both ground their ruling. They're leading in fear and force of power. And if that is not enough, Jeroboam, the one who looks for a moment, right, like he's one of the people, Like he might be okay even if he doesn't have David's blood running through his veins. He goes and builds a shrine to compete with the temple in Jerusalem. And his design includes not just one golden calf, but two. 
And if anyone has been paying attention, that's just about the worst thing faithful children of Israel can do. Because I'm guessing you all remember the story, right? When Jeroboam's ancestors were wandering in the desert, they stopped for a bit while Moses went up the mountain to chat with God. Ringing any bells? While he was there receiving the Ten Commandments, the people got antsy and Aaron, Moses' brother, and second in command, created a golden calf. And declared that the calf was their God, the one who brought them out of Egypt. Nope. Big nope. God grew irate and vowed to destroy the people and start over with Moses. Moses intervened and convinced God to spare the people. But the expectation going forward is crystal clear. The God who created us. The God who brought our ancestors out of Egypt and delivered us to the promised land. Asks us to worship him. And only him. It's at the top of that list. And honestly, it doesn't really sound like a lot to ask after all God has done and promises to do. And God expects the leaders, the kings, to lead the way. Now, it's safe to assume that Rehoboam and Jeroboam know the story. Maybe neither is a Bible whiz, but this one incident is crucial in their tradition, in our tradition. And yet Jeroboam lets his ambition and his fear of losing his grip on power get the best of him. He doesn't even try to be creative about it. He decides that it's too risky to allow the people to continue to travel to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices in the temple under Rehoboam's nose. So he decides to create a shadow shrine of sorts, an alternative to keep the people closer to home and less likely to shift allegiances back to Rehoboam in the south. He practically reenacts the full scene from Exodus. Nope. Big nope. As one of you noted in Bible study this past week, have they learned nothing? Now, it would be easy to shake our heads and wag our fingers to write off those silly kings with their funny names. But it is a crisis that has happened over and over again, not only in the larger world, but in the church. A crisis where human fear and love of power subverts faithfulness to the Lord of all. Today, we mark our annual celebration of Reformation Sunday, the commemoration of Martin Luther's pushing back against the leaders of the 16th century church who were exploiting the people to pay for the construction of St. Peter's in Rome. Specifically, they were selling forgiveness. God's forgiveness. Perhaps the greatest and freest gift of all. But the leaders had lost sight of the people and of their role in sharing the good news in word and deed. Like Rehoboam and Jeroboam, they had begun to see only as far as their fear and their greed. They had lost sight of the big picture, the longer and larger story. If there's any voice of hope, any faithful voice in this dismal story, it comes from the voices of the elders Rehoboam consults early on. They do, in fact, seem to remember the longer and larger story, even if all they have seen is Solomon's reign. Remember what they advise? If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. Speaking good words and service, they tell him, are the marks of a good king. 
And those words are not simply nice words or eloquent speeches. The language of good words in Hebrew echoes the language of covenant. The promises made between God and the people. The promises David's heir is called to uphold. These wise ones know that the grasping of power and the crushing of people is not the way to build a strong and lasting kingdom. In fact, it is a sure and certain way to undermine and destroy what little of the kingdom is left. We do not hear from those advisors again. Their voice fades from the narrative, but their good words remain hauntingly hovering in the background as David's kingdom, the golden pinnacle of Israel's history, crumbles under the weight of human arrogance and greed, as well as short-sighted fear. Because God was never looking to build up one particular king God longed, still longs, I believe, to build a people, a people that spans more than one generation, more than one moment. A few moments ago, we elected leaders who've answered a call to serve as officers in the coming year. And just to let those of you know who said, yes, elders, deacons, and pastors hold much less power than a king, just so you know. But there is an important responsibility placed on our shoulders, the shoulders of those who say yes. The Book of Order, our denomination's guide for how we do church, says that the ministries of elders and deacons are gifts to the church to order its life so that the ministry of the whole people of God may flourish. In other words, these leaders are called not to impose their wills with whips, but to help the whole people of God thrive and flourish. Flourishing may not mean that we see immediate results or that we get all the glory or any glory at all, really. Our serving means that we sign on not to enact our own vision, but to seeking to follow God's longer, larger vision. That we work towards something bigger than our preferences or ambitions. That we participate in God's hope for the future by offering our gifts for God's kingdom work. Same can be said about the pledges we make today. I'm guessing that many of you have filled out your pledge cards ahead of time after consulting your budget for 2020. It'll be another line item in your household expenses. One more thing to check off the list. But as you hand in your commitment, your covenant, your good word of promise for the coming year, I invite you to reflect on how this commitment differs from others. This is not a fee for the golf club or subscription renewal to public radio. This is not a transaction. It does not buy you grace or forgiveness or love. Those are already yours, freely given, endlessly offered. No, this is a gift towards something bigger than yourself, larger than your family, broader than your neighborhood, more expansive than your nation, and wider reaching than any one congregation. Your good word, your promise on that card invests you in God's longer and larger story in a tangible way. Yes, your pledges keep the lights on. And support Wednesday Night Live and the Chime Choir. But those are simply pieces of God's longer and larger story. A story that stretches far beyond us. But a story which by the grace of God includes us too. God's story is not a game of whips and bravado. 
God's story is one of mercy, courage, compassion, grace, love, service, and justice. And God's story has a part for all of God's children to play. Kings and advisors, acolytes and ushers, football players and ballerinas, elders, deacons, and occasional pew-sitters alike. We are united and gathered by God's good word in Jesus Christ. The ageless love of God made flesh so that we might understand God's never-ending love for us and for all. I recently came across a poem often attributed to the Roman Catholic Archbishop Oscar Romero, who, as you probably know, was assassinated in 1980 while celebrating Mass in El Salvador. I think it actually was written... In gratitude for him, but he gets credit most places on the internet. The poem is entitled, Prophets of a Future Not Our Own. It says, this is what we are about. We plant seeds that one day will grow. We water seeds already planted, knowing that they hold future promise. We lay foundations that will need further development. We provide yeast that produces effects beyond our capabilities. We cannot do everything. And there is a sense of liberation in realizing that. This enables us to do something and to do it very well. It may be incomplete, but it is a beginning, a step along the way, an opportunity for God's grace to enter and do the rest. We may never see the end result, but that is the difference between the master builder and the worker. We are workers, not master builders, ministers, not messiahs. We are prophets of a future, not our own. The story of Rehoboam and Jeroboam will likely not go down as a favorite for many. It does not usually make the cut when the children's story Bibles are compiled. And yet it is a crucial piece of our understanding of the dividing of the kingdom and the eventual destruction of Jerusalem. It is a crucial moment in that longer, larger story, our longer, larger story. It serves as a cautionary tale of greed and grasping, and yet it speaks a good word to us, too, if we're willing, if we are willing to listen to the voices of those long-forgotten advisors. That good word they recommend is one that never falls out of favor, one that lifts us beyond our navel-gazing and our hand-wringing ways. This good word draws us into the life of the word that is greater than we are. The word that claims us as his own, the word who calls to us across the ages. This word invites us to plant seeds and lay foundations, to stand up and speak out, to offer our own good word to the world. In his name and for his sake. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.